You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com because good causes deserve better results. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hey, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. Just to be clear, you are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. My job is to extract from our guests the practical, tactical expertise that you can put straight into action. This is a recording of a live Zoom call, and you can join these calls usually on a Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. You can find out all the details and register at nonprofitproblemsolver.com. If you haven't read the book Delusional Altruism, you should. But first, Listen to the author, Chris Putnam Walkerly, tell me about some of the delusions or blind spots in philanthropy and how nonprofits should approach grantmakers who suffer with some of them. We pull out gold dust about asking the wrong questions, and this advice applies to all of us when it comes to planning and executing, which is what we do every day. Let's take a listen. Well, welcome everyone to Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast. This is episode 24, and I am really excited about my guest today. It's Chris Putnam Walkerly, an old friend from Cleveland. And we are going to be talking um, about and around uh, her new book, which I'm going to hold up, if you, uh, which is Delusional Altruism. And the, the a, uh, subtitle is Why Philanthropists Fail to Achieve Change and What They Can Do to Transform Giving. Now, what I normally do, as people who've listened to this before uh, will know, is that I normally sort of do the questioning as though I'm, I'm, I'm an e- wearing an executive director's hat, sometimes a board chair's hat. So it's very much from the the nonprofit agency's side. Um, and what I love about this um, this book and this content, Chris, and what you cover is it's um, primarily from the grant makers or the philanthropist's point of view, but, <laughs> but there's some real gold dust in here that I think applies to anyone, uh, including very large public sector organizations I've worked for in the past. So, um, <laughs> hello, welcome. Uh, why don't you say, um, just tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, I know you've got, you know, lots of, lots of practice putting bios together. <laughs> yes. uh, thank you so much, Kevin. It's great to be here. Um, so, my name is Chris Putnam Walkerly, and I am a global philanthropy advisor which means I work with um, ultra high net worth donors, leaders of foundations and corporate giving programs who, you know, genuinely want to change the world and make a difference, but are often stuck in uh, figuring out exactly how to accomplish that. And so I help them to really increase their impact, no matter the circumstances. And I've been doing this for 20 years. um, And I also, you know, write a lot. So Delusional Altruism is my second book. And I write for Forbes.com about philanthropy as well. Yes. And you are a um, prolific poster on LinkedIn, uh, one of the, the many social media uh, 
platforms on which I follow you. So that's a good place for people to get in touch or to to follow you. Is there any other particular uh, way that people can reach out to find you online um, or or uh, ask you a question? Sure. Yeah. LinkedIn's a great place. I'm very active there. And my LinkedIn name is Chris Putnam, I believe. And um, yeah, my website is Putnam Consulting, putnam-consulting.com. And so that's a great place to you know, access all my contact information, all my social media, and also a link to the book as well. Fantastic. Okay. So on to the book. When did it come out? It was earlier. Uh, it was just, just late 2020, was it? In March of 2020. Oh, March. March it's, it's been that long. So it's about a week into lockdown. <laughs> ah, right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah. So what was the genesis of the book? And uh, tell us a little bit about the, um, the sort of uh, response it's had and, and how you've sort of developed your thinking in, in, as it's now out in the world. And, you know, it was probably a couple of years since you wrote at least some of the words, I'm sure. So how, how has the, the, it, the conversation evolved? Yeah. Well, the genesis of the book actually came from a question that I often ask my clients and that I ask myself. And the question is, if you could only accomplish one thing this year, but it was going to be your legacy at your organization, what would it be? Wow. And I, I like that question because, you know, it really gets to the heart of like what's most important. You know, we all feel like we have 20 priorities and maybe we can come up with three, but what's that one most important thing you want to accomplish because it's going to be your legacy. And so I asked myself that question and immediately this book came to mind. And so I realized I had to publish it. It had been on my mind for a while. Um, And, you know, the idea of the book delusional altruism comes from advising funders for 20 years um, and recognizing that, you know, philanthropists are, you know, generally speaking, genuine in their delu- in their in their delusions not genuine in their altruism <laughs> maybe they are genuine in their delusions genuine in their altruism you know really wanting to make a difference change the world have a positive impact on other people's lives but are often getting in their own way and often they don't even realize that this is happening they're actually preventing themselves from having the impact that they want and that's because they're holding on to really a handful of i think misguided beliefs and practices that are restraining them and uh, they don't realize it. And so I wanted to write the book uh, to be both, you know, a bit provocative, but also very practical and helping funders recognize how this happens because it happens to all of us. Everything mm-hmm. I've written about really has happened to me. Well, well, they're common. I mean, they're common in every organization I've come across as well. You yeah. know, the, the references you make to, uh, uh, well, we'll get into some of the details in a minute, but, but, but a very common um, with, with every anecdote of yours that, that I read, uh, from a foundation, I think, yeah, and then here's a, you know, another organization um, that that where that's happened as well. Yeah, I think what I write about really is applicable to not just philanthropists, but nonprofit leaders, um, business leaders. I mean, really anybody. And I think from the nonprofit leaders' perspective, the book is really useful for two reasons. One is I think all the lessons you know are directly applicable to them as well, but also it's a really a glimpse into the insides, you know, into the minds of donors and what's really happening behind the curtain. Yeah. So, and then how has the, uh, the conversation evolved? What was, what's been the response have, um, I know you've got sort of glowing um, endorsements on the, on the book jacket, of course. Um, but uh, as you've been out and you're very active on the conference tour, um, it, well, it, you know, 
as much as you can be in 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 uh, lockdown and so on. But uh, mm-hmm. how have people responded? Yeah, the response has been great. Um, the folks that have read the book that you know I hear from love it um, and find it incredibly helpful. I've talked to many like new foundation leaders who are new to philanthropy who find it just a super useful guidebook to help them really understand philanthropy. And seasoned leaders, you know, are you know finding insights in there that are really helping them with specific problems. Um, you know, I've been, you know, yes, we're on lockdown, but I've been talking to more people about about anything about the book than I ever have, you know, in my career. Really, I mean, in nine months last year, I think I gave twenty four webinars and virtual keynotes, a lot of you know pulling content from the book, and yeah. you know, have been doing dozens and dozens of podcast interviews. So. That's been great. I've had a lot of, um, you know, I've been giving a lot of keynotes at conferences and the conference organizers are purchasing, you know, 200, 300 copies of the book and mailing them out to participants as part of the kind of gift box, you know, that yeah, you used yeah, to get great. to the conference, they'd hand you a bag. Well, now they're shipping boxes of, you know, coffee and coffee mugs and books. <laughs> yeah. So that's been fun. Yeah, it's been really positive. And you know, what surprised me the most actually is how relevant the content is to responding to these crises of the past year. Yeah, I think, yeah, and I think, I think that's, uh, that's, that's timely. I mean, it's sort of an accidental uh, good fortune. But one of the things that that struck me is, you know, I've come across a lot of sort of, I guess, business or professional trade books have, uh, if you will. And um, I think a common criticism is that all the the real meat is in the first chapter and then the rest of the book sort of just spins it out in various ways and what i i um what i loved about yours aside being you know very well organized and well written and easy to read is that there's stuff to go back to over and over and over again because people are moving at different paces and over the course of say any type of um effort to address these things you know, you're going to go. You're going to need to go back and 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 look at perhaps a you know a different delusion or a, or a different uh, solution. Um, what what have you found, people? What what have you found of the sort of content uh, has resonated most with um, foundations? Yeah, a couple things. One is the um, mindsets. I talk about a scarcity mindset in philanthropy, and then an abundance mindset, and that has really resonated with funders, um, efforts to increase speed in philanthropy. So I have a whole chapter about how funders are too slow. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure your nonprofit listeners um, will understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. And then also a whole chapter on how to increase your speed, not just as an organization, but also as an individual. Like how do you get more time back in your day so that you can be more productive and effective and get more done? And so that's been re- resonated well. Um, you know, I think the questions, I, I talk a lot about, you know, the wrong questions funders ask that lead them down the wrong path. Yeah. And also, um, there's a whole chapter, chapters eight, I think it is, is 12 questions I think all funders should be asking. And people really have resonated with that as well. Well, th- it's funny you mentioned that because those are the two that, that I would have put out. They're right in the middle of the book. Uh, I think the... Um, the w- the wrong questions is like the last of the delusions and the and which questions to ask is for the first of the you know how to address them and and I just imagine you could pull those two out and 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 it it's, it applies in in every situation and I think for for people leading non nonprofit um, uh, agencies or delivery organizations if you will 
um, the, the three wrong questions is something that I found really powerful. Um, so I'll, I want to get to get to that in just a moment, but I, I titled this session, what, you know, what should, a what, what should nonprofit leaders do about a delusion, a delusional <laughs> philanthropist? And I just want to confirm because, um, I actually said the title before I'd read the book properly. So I'll, I'll admit that in full transparency. Um, and had I had, had, uh, it's not that I've come up with another title, but I think the answer to that question is just move on. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you've got a if you have delusional philanthropist, it's like, well, this is probably not going to work in the short term. Move on. You know, find and find someone else because you're not going to necessarily change them. However, um, so I'll, I'll ask you to confirm that in a in a second. It does it does seem though if you have a relationship with a philanthropist that you could address some of the. Um, of those wrong questions. So that might be a, an entry point if there's a, I think most people will be open to that, um, strangely. But um, anyway, is that, was is that if, 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 if you, I was an ED or board chair and I said, I think, my, I think this grant maker I'm working with <laughs> is suffering from one or more of the delusions you identify, Chris, what should I do? What, what would be your advice? Well, I would actually say don't necessarily move on at all because I can make the argument that all funders suffer from delusional altruism in some form or fashion. Okay. You know, quite frankly, we all do. Um, You know, this is really not to be meant to be like a a blame and shame type of book. It's really meant to help people see their own blind spots, essentially. And I think we all experience these, but I do think it's helpful for nonprofits to understand that they're happening and why they're happening. And so you know, like, for example, um, you know, I talk about fear and how fear holds funders back. And that's one mm. of the chapters and the delusions. And I think fear is really the reason why so many funders have this kind of scarcity mindset. But, you know, so, so to understand, like, one of the fears is fear of losing control. Um, so often funders will, you know, as they fear losing control, they're giving their money away but there's a fear of loss of control. And so that's why I think they sort of create all these tight restrictions, um, you know, excessive application questions, money for programs, but not for personnel, um, refusal of giving core general operating support, um, you know, only doling out grants in one year increments and not issuing multi-year grants, all these things. And so, you know, I know that frustrates a lot of nonprofit leaders because, you know, everybody wants general operating support and multi-year funding, right? Because that gives you some freedom, some breathing room, space to be able to act accordingly, seize opportunities, navigate around challenges. Plan. And not piecemeal all this funding together. Hmm? Plan. Hire coaches. (laughs) (laughs) Hire coaches. Yeah, that's right. But also, yeah, just plan. You know, and have a right, sort of sense right, of, right, like, you know. Right, and be scrambling all the time. But, uh, but to understand, you know, if you understand it, it might be a fear of losing control, then you can respond differently. You know, I think one of the important things that both donors and nonprofits need to do is build trusting relationships with each other mm-hmm. and, and be in constant contact, especially during a crisis. You know, I think many nonprofits, I'm sure you experience this too, um, when the when COVID hit, you know, there was a lot of fear about reaching out to donors, you know, should I fundraise during yeah. the pandemic, right? And, you know, so they held back. But, you know, if you have a trusting relationship with your funder, and you understand them, then that helps ensure those relationships continue. And you, you can simply have a conversation to say, 
here's what we need. How can you help? Um, but, you know, if you understand that your donor might be feeling fearful and lacking control, then you can use that relationship to explain to them what's happening, let them know how you are using the funding. You know, if the more they trust you and know you, the less fear they're going to have that they're out of control when they're allocating their funding. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. And fear does shows up uh, again and again, um, and as does the scarcity mindset. And it's it's interesting. Uh, I think sort of it's very commonplace to reference the scarcity mindset when we're talking about fundraising and we're and we're thinking of scarcity with regard to to money, but it really extends to all our resources. You know, you mentioned control. Uh, clearly, scarcity mindset around time. Uh, and 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 expertise. Uh, there's 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 scarcity in in everywhere in every, everywhere. If you look at it, and people fearful of whether they have enough, whether they are enough, whether they're in enough control, uh, and it can it can it can make things really difficult to move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the scarcity mindset in philanthropy. I think it it, it it's first. It's a mindset, and it's really thinking about. You know, some this misguided belief that if you maintain a Spartan operation, somehow that equates to del- delivering more value into the community. And but it really is a mindset, and it it, it happens sort of t- setting aside money and grants, just in the minds of funders. It's uh, you know believing that you don't have enough money to make a difference. You know, you recognize that the problem is serious, and it requires a lot of resources to create truly lasting change, but instead of, uh, you know, embracing an abundance mindset of like, who could we partner with and how can we leverage more resources to really tackle this? You might think as a funder with a scarcity mindset, well, you know, we just have this little bit of money. We only give away whatever, a million dollars a year and not 20 million. So we're just going to kind of fund band-aid solutions to the problem because that's all we can do, right? Yeah. It's really a mindset. Um, nonprofits experience this mindset a lot when funders, you know, refuse to allocate funding toward, you know, um, the things that nonprofits are required, you know, need to run well, like hiring top talent, investing in good financial management systems, develop, you know, fund development efforts, executive coaching and uh, training, professional development, good board governance, you know, all these things, strategic planning evaluation. I could go on. Yeah. Um, you know, these things are really important for a nonprofit to be, to build, to strengthen itself and to uh, be the best that it can be to have the greatest impact. But funders often don't recognize this. They have this myth around overhead is bad. And, you know, only 10% of the grant can be allocated to overhead, uh, not recognizing what they're doing is really hamstringing the nonprofit. And if you're a funder and you want to have the greatest impact on whatever issue or cause you believe in, and there's a nonprofit that you are funding and you believe in, you know, don't you want them to have top talent and the ability to evaluate themselves and a fabulous board and, a, you know, top-notch fund development apparatus? Of course you do, but you have to recognize that that requires funding as well. Yeah. I wanted, and, I w- oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. So one of the delusions I, I anticipated was was something around that, the, um, so I see a lot uh, this this question of impact and effectiveness because I see a lot of foundations list as their impact 
the money they give out. And so, you know, and then I'm like, wait a minute, you're, you're enabling someone else to do impact. I, you know, I get that fair enough. We don't have to sort of um, be too pedantic here, but then not following through on looking at where they're, what actually happened with their, their funding. And yet I know that they've required lots of data returns and, and so on and so forth, but without the overhead, I mean, what reassurance do, uh, foundations or family foundations or whatever have that the programs are actually working, that they're structured properly, that they're, they're getting the right, the right people in them and the right people through them and achieving the right uh, outcomes if, if there's not the, the system to, to, to support that work. You know, and that, and I thought that would be one of the the delusions, but um, not that I was disappointed it wasn't there. Um, but that was sort of my my premise coming in is like, oh, this this impact delusion. Um, but you've said it just now, and in a slightly different way, and I think in a sense more profoundly that it's a it's a sector wide issue. That if you really care about the impact, why would you um, hamstring it or undermine it in that way? Exactly, and you know, evaluation is a, it's a big question and issue that funders grapple with because they do want to know that the money is making a difference. And but there's a couple challenges. One is uh, again the scarcity mindset and an unwillingness to fund to pay for the cost of evaluation. And you'll see this in you know a donor that gives a you know five thousand dollars a relatively small grant and is you know can't understand why there aren't you know evaluative outcomes as a result. Right. Well, they're not paying for it. Right. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the grant has to be appropriately sized compared to the evaluation. Right. So there's a lack of willingness to pay for it. And then um, I think another challenge is a lack of willingness to walk your talk. So it's, it's very easy for a funder to look at a nonprofit and, and put expectations on them that they're not willing to put on themselves as well. And so I think one of the ways is you expect, you know, nonprofits to have outcomes and demonstrate their impact, but you're actually not expecting yourself as a funder to do that, or you don't know how, or you don't want to invest in it. Another way it's playing out, I think a lot is around um, racial equity, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, in the United States, at least there has been for many years, an increasing awareness of the importance of supporting, um, diversity, inclusion, and equity, and uh, especially in the past, you know, year, understanding, you know, systemic racism in this country and mm-hmm. police brutality and really a, a racial reckoning and a much greater deepening of awareness of the role of philanthropy to address this. But still, it's very easy, and I hear this all the time, where a funder, a white funder will say, well, we need to make sure we're funding only organizations that, you know, have diverse leadership which is good. Like it's good to think about the leadership of a nonprofit. And if you want to address issues in communities of color, making sure that the organization is led and staffed by people of color from those communities, right? That's important, but not even thinking, do we need to look at our own leadership? You know, are Mm -hmm. we diverse? Like, are we even talking about racism, you know, our own racism? Are we even thinking about this learning? Are we trying to diversify our own board? You know, so it, so it's he's putting these expectations on the nonprofit that you're not putting on yourself. Another big one is around innovation. So it's, I, I would imagine if you looked at the funding guidelines of every foundation in the United States, for sure, 
the word innovation would show up. We fund innovative leaders, innovative programs, innovative nonprofits. Right. But rarely do funders actually ever define what they mean by innovation, um, nor does anyone ever talk about how do you build your innovation muscle? Like, how do you actually become more innovative? Like, there's practical things you can do. And rarely does the funder ever expect that, like, they're going to be the one that's innovative. It's like, we'll fund you. You better be innovative, nonprofit leader. But, you know, we're just going to, like, hand out the money. And so I think that's a larger issue as well of, you know, kind of this lack of, of walking your own talk in philanthropy, um, you know, that I think is improving in many ways, but certainly needs to be tackled. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's great. I thought the, um, there were many anecdotes in your book that, that uh, showed that one of the, the ones that, that sort of made me laugh out loud was the, the foundation that wanted to go on some extended listening tour um, uh, you know, to, to, and, and you're thinking, and I think your advice to them was you're filled with X, you have all the information you need. You have a staff full of expertise. You've got all the data. You've been doing this for years. You know, you can't possibly be that far away that you would need to, the time and the expense of a listening tour. Yeah, this is, uh, this is a big one. Um, really, this is one of the, um, the questions that I suggest people ask themselves, and again, this applies to nonprofit leaders as well, is what do I already know? Because I, because the tendency for all of us is when we're posed with a question, you know, we assume we don't really know the answer and we must go research. We need to go on Google. We need to conduct a learning tour, you know, conduct an environmental scan or a needs assessment or whatever it might be, right? Interview a bunch of people. And I'm not against data, you know, and you might need to collect. Or learning or, yeah, or learning. best practices. <laughs> like that's all good. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> Evidence-based practice, all for it. But um, I think everyone, funders, nonprofits, need to start first by saying, what do we already know? And literally, like with yourself or your team, your board, your staff, brainstorm, you know, whatever it is. And because you know more than you know, you're smart, you know, you've been doing this work. You So a lot of this happens in strategic planning where, um, and, and it slows down strategic planning and decision-making where, you know, at the beginning of any kind of strategic plan, funders will say, well, we must, uh, you know, and, and do all this data collection, right? And if it just started with what do we already know about our community, about the needs we're seeing, about changes, demographics, um, either, you know, literally what's in their heads at that moment, or even just kind of taking a day to kind of look at existing data, evaluations, recent reports from nonprofits, and, you know, spent two hours brainstorming and someone typed this all up, you'll have so much insight. Um, you'll capture so much learning of what you already know. And, and then you can figure out, okay, well, what we know all this, but what do we actually still not know? There's still going to be things you don't know. But then you can go after that smaller bit of information and insight from, you know, fewer people or go after that specific information, it'll take less time and it'll cost you less money to gather that information, either hiring someone to find it for you or your own staff time. And uh, yeah, so that's a really important one. I think that's a huge, um, you know, I talk about how important strategic planning is and strategy is for both, you know, nonprofits and foundations, but it can take way too long uh, you know, I think this pandemic has shown us the futility of spending a year to create a, you know, five years strategic plan. Yeah, yeah, that's right. How would you recommend that in that that situation you described, which I think is 
uh, would be really, really good um, approach for lots of people. But I can, I can imagine someone saying that they, um, yes, they know quite a lot, but they, they're also making a lot of assumptions. They have some um, both implicit and explicit biases that they want testing. And by going off and doing all this, you know, this research, they're, they're um, hearing from different voices and they're, you know, they're not just recycling uh, what, what they think they already know. So I suspect there's a relatively straightforward way to, to check for that um, rather than abandon the, <laughs> the idea of what you already know altogether. Yeah, so I think, you know, first ask, what do we already know? And then ask, what don't we know? Because as smart and brilliant as you are, you know, there's things that you don't know for a variety of reasons. And then the third, the next question to ask is who else needs to be involved? And I think this is a really important one um, for a lot of reasons, but certainly uh, in terms of thinking about engaging more diverse perspectives to inform, you know, whatever it is you're trying to do. And especially, you know, the diverse perspectives of the people you're trying to help. And so that could be the nonprofit leaders that you're funding or it, and or it could also be community members or people who are directly impacted by whatever issue you're trying to support. And that's really important because, you know, it, it is often the people who are most impacted by something that know the most yeah. about yeah. problem and solutions or potential solutions. And, you know, chances are pretty high that, you know, regardless of who you are as a person in your own life experience, there's still a lot you don't know. But I, I do really think that when you start with what you already know, it, it, it gives you, you know, something to, to, to work from mm -hmm. um, as opposed to kind of feeling like, oh, it's just an open question, you know, as if you know nothing. Yeah. Because you wouldn't have gotten to the place that you are if you knew nothing, really. Right. Okay. So, so just um, coming full circle then, if you... Um, if you come across a delusional philanthropist, <laughs> or when you do, or you start to uh, sort of assess and recognize perhaps the delusions that your you know, particular foundation is, um, uh, is, is working through, is experiencing, the, 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 the response is not move on quickly, but is, is still to engage. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the other frustrations that I think people feel on the ground is that... Um, you know, there isn't necessarily a single face of, of say, a foundation. You know, there might be the foundation's uh, leadership and the strategic plan, but a lot of nonprofits are really in touch with a single program officer or someone who's managing a particular fund. They're, they're, and that person, you know, can't really, <laughs> you know, resolve the delusions of, a, of the organization or whatever, you know, is quite limited in, in, in the response. How, how would you recommend... Uh, a nonprofit leader, just again, from almost as much of a mindset perhaps as anything else, just uh, approach that relationship in order to not get sort of um, too frustrated or uh, feeling like um, it's not a good use of their time. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a couple of things. One is you're hitting on a really important point that there are multiple layers of leadership within, let's just say a foundation. And, you know, an important piece of that is the board. And the people that any nonprofit has the least access to, chances are, is the board. Yeah. Um, and they're hard to find, right? Because even if they list their names on the website, they're not listing contact information. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's a challenge because a lot of these policy decisions are made at the board level. Um, 
So the whole notion, just take an example of, you know, whether or not to offer a general operating support to nonprofits could be a board decision. The willingness to provide multi-years of funding could be a board decision, for example. So there could be a lot of things that, you know, you might have a program officer in a foundation who, you know, absolutely wants to provide general operating support, but can't. And they're not in a position of power to make that change. Even maybe the executive director isn't able to make that change. So that's, you know, just kind of a reality. I think it's an important reality to recognize. Um, Secondly, a mindset shift, and you referenced this earlier, is that the mindset shift is recognize that you're a peer to the funders um, and uh, recognize that they need you uh, really to fulfill their mission. Because, you know, a funder, whatever their mission is, let's say it's to, you know, support arts and culture in their community, isn't the one providing arts education, you know, isn't the one like leading the docent tour of the museum, right, yeah. or running the museum, right? They're the one funding it. And so, so, so you're, yeah, so, so sorry to cut, I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but it's an important uh, point here around uh, shifting the the power basic the basically the power balance between you as an executive director because you are the keys to the impact, and so yeah. really you need to work in, in more of a a, a level partnership. Mm-hmm. And even just to see, view yourself as a level as a partner, again, it's a mindset. Like you might not say this directly to the funder, but if in your head you're questioning, do I call the donor or do I not call the donor? You know what I mean? Like those moments where you're like, I know I need to make these donor calls, but I'm holding back and I'm procrastinating and, oh, maybe they're too busy. And yeah, you know, you talk yourself and all this stuff. <laughs> well, it's a mindset shift of like, actually they need me. Like I'd be doing them a disservice not to get in front of them and build a relationship or call them right now because I'm, I'm helping them fulfill their mission. They're lucky to have me. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? I mean, it really is a mindset because it's true you know, they, they are meeting their missions through the nonprofits that they're supporting in large part. And that's important. And then also just recognizing that, um, you know, just viewing yourself as that peer, I think is equally important, um, which is a hard thing to do because there's an obvious power dynamic. You know, one of you is handing out money. One of you is asking for money. You know, there's a power dynamic. Well, there's there. also an application process. You know, there's a there's a formal process, even if it's simple and quick. Uh, mm-hmm. On the one that there is, as you said, there's that there's the physical task of 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 completing that application, and that, as you said, that sort of feels very real, like cap in hand. You know, um, mm-hmm. but what you need to be, I guess, part of that mindset shift would be thinking of that as a bureaucratic a bureaucratic technique on behalf of the funder to process the requests. Mm-hmm. And and not really, uh, you know, not really a standoffish. You know, you've got to jump through these hoops and these hurdles to even talk to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, that's a good, yeah, that's a good way to think about it too. And and just you know, just see yourself as a peer, so that it is a conversation, it is a relationship. Um, and then the third thing I'd suggest is try to build relationships uh, across the organization, so not just with the one person you might be working with, if there's others in the organization, you can begin to build relationships with too, even if it's just, you know, coffee or sending some information or, I don't know, asking questions on a webinar, whatever it is, because, you know, people leave, there's turnover. 
And it's important that you're known not just with the one program officer, but also with the executive director and maybe a board member if you can. Um, if there's opportunities to speak, you know, sometimes, again, when we can all gather, um, you know, boards want um, to hear from grantees directly and people are invited to speak at, at board meetings. Any opportunity you have, I think, to get in front of the people in the foundation, in the corporate uh, giving office um, is very helpful because, you know, building that breadth of relationship is very helpful. Yeah, and it's it's it reminds me of uh, the sort of always good advice that um, the, the relationships don't don't start when the grant award comes in. It starts long before, and it needs so therefore you need to have a strategy because again you only have so much time and effort to put towards this in you know in your balance of priorities that um, you know you can't just sort of play shotgun tag with um, donor search or you know grant station and just you know <laughs> just sort of you know uh, apply to everything willy-nilly you've really got to be thoughtful uh, about your approach and 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 try and humanize it with the relationships as much as as possible yeah and I'm glad you mentioned both strategy and priorities because I really think this is one of the most important things that all all of us need to be doing right now, which is to, if you don't have a clear strategy for the next 12 months to create one, if you have one from last year, or God forbid, longer, it probably <laughs> needs to be refreshed. And again, as I referenced earlier, this is not like a one-year process where you have to gather all this data um, necessarily at all. I think strategy can be developed really quickly, as in like a day or a week. Sure. Um, yeah. And and I think especially, um, you know, lately, you know, the beginning of this decade has been particularly bizarre and turbulent, and the conditions are constantly changing. We keep having these crises one after the other, and it can feel impossible to plan ahead. But I really think it's important for, for all of us, for funders, for nonprofits to, you know, create a plan that you can count on quickly to begin using it for as long as that makes sense. And then to change it rapidly as conditions change, because conditions will change and, you know, continue to change. And I think, again, part of it is a mindset, sh mindset shift to switch from this mindset of the future is uncertain and so you're paralyzed right. to really recognize that the future is always uncertain. You know, disruption is the status quo. And, you know, let the unknown future free you because you can't possibly plan for every contingency so don't try, you know, instead, you know, recalibrate your timeline and figure out, you know, again, asking those right questions, you know, what are we trying to accomplish in the next 12 months? Where are we today? And then how do we best get from where we are today to where we want to be? What are the three or four most important priorities to focus on? What's that 20% of effort that's going to drive that 80% of result? Mm-hmm. And, and who's accountable for each of those priorities and really get people moving on them and assume that things are going to have to change along the way and, and literally build in time in your calendar every month, every quarter, whatever makes sense to check in on your progress to say, well, what's working in implementing this new strategy? What's not working? What's changed in the world, in our organization that might require us to stop doing something or add something or change something? You know, so that you always have a living, breathing, sentient strategy that's your framework for guiding your decisions. And, and that also helps you as a nonprofit to figure out, well, and, 
A, you have clarity on your strategy. You can then articulate that and describe that to the funder so they understand what you're trying to do and how they fit in. And then it can help you to um, identify the right funding partners to go after and, and really even how to frame your whole message. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a great uh, sort of uh, overview, I think, of uh, what it boils down to, and I think, is that the three to five year strategic planning cycle that I think people have sort of fallen into um, was really because three to five years seemed about the the amount of clarity we had. You couldn't really see beyond that. And now sometimes for in certain situations, it's three to five months or it's 10 to 12 months or whatever it is, yeah. but you, you know, you adjust. And what I loved about um, the, the asking the wrong questions and your recommendation about the, the right order and the right way of framing them. I'd like you to sort of summarize that for us if you can. Um, but to me, that was infinitely adjustable. That's what I love is like, wow, these can, you can use these everywhere. You can use this for the strategy for the day, the strategy for the week. You could, you know, how you, and it doesn't matter whether you're from the, whether you're funding or whether you're receiving money or, you know, putting together your application and what you're going to do with it. The asking these questions in this order, and I don't mean the 12, I mean the three, the way you said the wrong questions. Can you, can you just walk through that um, really briefly? Because uh, I, I just think it's magic. Yeah. Well, the first wrong question to ask is how, and um, how do you do something? And of course, how is a perfectly fine question, but it's the order in which it's asked. And so I think what you need to do is ask first what before asking how. And this is really about like, clarifying your strategy before your tactics because it's too easy for all of us to jump into tactics like how are we going to do something but you can't possibly know how to do something until you know what you're trying to do and while that seems obvious you know we don't actually act that way right too often we kind of jump into the how we're going to accomplish something without clarity on what we're actually trying to do and, and, and we do this sorry i was going to say what what i thought was profound about that was the that what we actually end up doing is working out um what seems reasonable in terms of the how and then saying well therefore that's what we're going to do yes you know in so many meetings so people say well how would you do that and then you get bogged down uh, you get into the weeds and they work out this how that you know seems doable they go okay so then that's what we're doing it's like yeah, <laughs> it's so frustrating. Right, right. So it really limits your thinking. It limits your possibilities, right? If you think about, you know, what are we trying to accomplish? And that could be big. And that, that could be like a big 10-year goal. But, you know, what are we actually trying to accomplish in the next year? Because I think you're right. We can only plan out about a year max at this point. Um, and, only, and then figure out how to do that. And another question to ask um, is, uh, you know, is, is really thinking about, like, what are all the ways? Like the, the wrong question to ask is what's the best way to do this? So here's, we figured out what we're trying to accomplish. And then your next question might be, what's the best way to do that? But I think that's a wrong question because you first, you really need to figure out what are all the ways we can do this, right? So allow yourself the freedom to think about, to brainstorm every possible way you could accomplish something. Um, because when you start with what's the best way to do it, it can also, it can be very limiting. Like you, Imagine you're sitting around your, you know, conference table or on Zoom and you're like, what's the best way to raise a million dollars? And everyone's looking at you like you're in the headlights because no one knows. The single the best. best way. Like there's the a right way. Answer. Or you might think, yeah. oh, I do know it, but I'm not going to say it. I'm afraid to say it. 
but allow people to really brainstorm all the possible ways because you might come up with something you didn't think of and only then can you really figure out what's the best way to do it um and then again i think you know getting clarity on you know your priorities and really getting people implementing them quickly um and then the last question the last wrong question i share in the book is um let's get started right away or i guess it's not a question how quickly can we start whatever the question is um and again you might think that because my focus is on increasing speed that would be a good question but i do think it's worth before you jump into action to think about what are the risks and really assess what are the prudent you know kind of prudent risk so is whatever you're trying to do does it fit with your overarching strategy you know what are the um opportunities and challenges what's it really going to take to implement this um you know what are the costs and benefits you don't have to spend a lot of time figuring that out but i do think it's worth taking a moment because not every interesting idea is worth pursuing and assessing risk and that might simply be so that you can then mitigate it you can say yeah this is risky but it's a risk we're willing to take because the payoff could be really big and here's the things we're going to put in place to try to mitigate that risk so i think you know those uh, are really the the three questions asking how before what um, asking what's the best way to do something before figuring out all the ways to do it and asking how quickly can we get started before assessing risk, I think are the, the wrong questions that many funders ask. Yeah. And, but I think again, it's, it's applicable to just about any, any effort, you know, any effort that you want to do. And, 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 and so, so many times with nonprofits, uh, early stage nonprofits, founding nonprofits, fast growing nonprofits, uh, where the programming is expanding, or like in times of crisis or, or extended lockdown, when you have to re-engineer what it is you're doing, you know, you start with what is it we're trying to do? What are all the ways we could do it? Um, and and uh, what are the risks involved and how do we, how do we manage them? And those are like the classic questions, but you can wrong foot yourself by setting off with how and best and you know and then you know pouring pouring urgency all over everything and assuming we're gonna you know we're gonna do this overnight absolutely i mean one an easy way to think about this i think is around communications so you know you might think about how can we increase our you know brand awareness or our communications and you jump into the how so you say well should we be on twitter or instagram right <laughs> both of those could be wrong right you don't even know because you have no plan of what you're trying to accomplish, right? And then you'll, you know, figure out what's the best way to, you know, how do we, what's the best way to get onto Twitter? What's the best way to promote ourselves on Twitter? And then you say, well, we need to hire a, you know, I don't know, an outside social media consultant and off, and great, who knows somebody? I do. And then like off you go, <laughs> you know, on your Twitter campaign, which could be entirely irrelevant to whatever you're trying to do, because you have to first figure out what are we trying to accomplish with communications? And along with that, like, who's the audience and what are we trying to get them to do? And then figuring out, like, what are all the options for reaching that audience with these communications goals? And then picking the one that or few that are the best and then figuring out, you know, what are the risks, uh, the costs, you know, whatever associated with this? Is it is it worth taking some prudent risk in doing this? Um, yeah, I think those are really important and applicable to anything. Yeah, as 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 are the twelve questions. I think um, so. I think you know. Just again, I think they're very sensible things in terms of they're basically the implementation 
questions and 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 very very generalizable. Um, I feel like we could we could we could speak all day on this. We're we're running out of time now. Um, what is uh, what's next for you, Chris? Uh, well, before I jump into that, what's next? I just want to share one resource that I think will be of oh, interest great. to your listeners that I referenced. Um, it's actually a free guide. It's called Eight Things Every Philanthropist Can Do to Change the World, Even When the World Keeps Changing. And you can okay. download it if you just go to eightthings.org. It's a free download. And again, not unlike the book, uh, it's titled you know, as a guide for philanthropists, but it's entirely relevant for nonprofits as well. And it's really about what I talked about, how to kind of create that plan quickly. If it's your strategic plan or your fundraising plan, communications plan, you're planning a wedding, whatever it is, you know, <laughs> how do you create that plan quickly, uh, begin implementing it right away for as long as it makes sense and change uh, quickly as conditions change around you. And it offers, you know, again, eight practical steps to do That's that. That's fantastic. So it, Thank you for that. So that's it. That's at eightthings.org. Yes. And is that yes. eight with the, the numeral eight? It's actually either way. I bought oh, both of the domains. You bought both. <laughs> Clever. Eight, number eight or eight, the, the spelling it out eight. Okay. Eightthings.org. Um, okay. That's great. Uh, so what's next? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I continue, the work that I do is a, a lot of strategy development with, you know, both nonprofits actually and uh, foundation leaders, um, strategy implementation. I help a lot of my clients once they have their strategic plan and then they're often kind of stuck, like, well, how do we start implementing this? Or why is nothing happening? <laughs> yeah. I help them you know, really jumpstart the implementation of it. And then I do a lot of advising and coaching um, with uh, philanthropy leaders. I have a, a program that's really taking off. It's called VIP Strategy and Coaching Day. And it's either a day together in person when that can happen. And of course, now it's virtual. But it's really a day dedicated like one-on-one -on -one to my clients to help them really like jumpstart their work or whatever they're, whatever they're grappling with. Yeah. Helping them, um, you know, take their work to a next level, identify their goals, and together we come up with an action plan of what they can do differently you know, over the course of, you know, two to three Zoom sessions. Um, so people like that a lot right now because it's virtual and it's quick. You know, it can yeah. help really get someone the, the next steps that they need to create the change that they want to create. That's excellent. And people can find out more about that on your website? Yes. Putnam, Putnam, Putnam Cons Consulting. Right. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been uh, Nonprofit Problem Solver, the podcast uh, with Chris Putnam Walkerly, and we've been discussing her book, Delusional Altruism. Uh, strongly recommend you go and uh, pick up a copy and uh, join us next time. We're always here Wednesday at 11 Eastern. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. Big shout out to Chris Putnam Walkerly for sharing insights from her latest book. You can find her active on LinkedIn and at her website, putnamconsulting.com, and check out the resources she's put together at 8things.com. This episode was produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com because good causes deserve better results.